Hey everyone, and welcome to the podcast Pigeon. My name is Brandon Pay, and with me today is my good friend Brandon Cho. Before we get this episode rolling, we want to thank you so much for listening in and making today's recording possible. Yes, definitely.、Um, thank you, Pay, for a warm introduction, and thank you, the listeners, for joining us today. In today's episode, we're going to start off by introducing our mission statement and by setting the tone for the next few episodes. Additionally, we'll go into why we named ourselves after a bird and how that applies to the aforementioned tone. From there, we'll jump right into talking about today's topic. Cho, do you mind starting us off? Sure, not a problem. The podcast Pigeon Team is a small group of,、uh, I guess, like extremely passionate and socially conscious individuals. We believe in being positive influences. And as we work hard to increase awareness within our respective communities, we would like to discuss topics that may be perceived as either controversial or sensitive. And we encourage our listeners to view themselves as part of a global family that shares a communal responsibility to positively impact our home. And only through increased、uh, solidar- solidarity and an egalitarian passion for growth. Can we truly inspire the next generation of leaders to guide the world on the path to social justice? We are storytellers with a voice. It's time to reuse them. And in regards to our name, we chose the pigeon because we wanted to, I guess, like have a symbol that could represent connectivity within the community. And the development of this podcast, it occurred to pay that carrier pigeons were used to transport messages back and forth throughout the world wars. So, kind of rolling with the idea, we liked how the pigeon could be used. Represent the concept of communication, and even in the digital era that we're currently in. So, as social citizens and podcast pigeons, we're spreading awareness one message at a time. <laughs> Definitely, wow, Cho, I couldn't have said it better. Yes, we are all storytellers with a voice, and podcast pigeons who appreciate the value of perspective and respectful advocacy. As mentioned by Cho, the topics in which this podcast discusses will revolve around themes of social justice. Even as we cycle our hosts in and out, our episodes will focus on what it means to be an active social citizen. Why? Because each and every one of us must have the humility to acknowledge the essential roles of our peers while maintaining full awareness of our own unique collaborative powers. The challenges of globalization are now surpassing our community's ability to respond. As such, we must use the keys of multilateralism and increased awareness to create both social harmony and equity. And with that said, we're now going to discuss the gross and serious violations of human rights that encompass slavery in the modern era. Cho, let's start with past and current international action. Okay, so、um, under comprehensive regional and international rights treaties, including the European Convention for the Protection of Human Rights and Fundamental Freedoms, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and the Inter- International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, or ICCPR. The prohibition of contemporary forms of slavery is non-derogable. Per the 1850 Declaration relative to the universal、uh, abolition abolition of the slave trade, the right to be free from slavery is considered the first、uh, peremptory norm of customary international law. Today, however, two major treaties, both rooted firmly in the ab- abolitionist movement, contradict such declaration. Yes, the Slavery Conventions of 1926 and 1956 outlawed slavery, but they ultimately failed to establish permanent international bodies that can both evaluate and pursue information about governmental violations, especially in the context of fleeing refugees. The International Court of Justice, or the ICJ, has identified protections from slavery as one of two examples of obligations ergo omnes arising from human rights law, 
or a country's obligations owed to the international community. Through this recognition, it's understood by countries around the world that the practice of slavery is a crime against humanity and that the right to be free is considered so fundamental that all nations have to stand to bring offending countries before the court of justice. Abolitionist outrage has created momentum for the rhetoric of many bilateral treaties that outlawed bondage and the passage of anti-slavery regulations. However, the problem is, is the majority of efforts have proven to be unilateral, thus making them both ineffective in practice and irrelevant in discussion. The concomitant calls for the right to be free can be found in enlightenment reasoning, where the abolitionist sentiment would eventually become a truly international concern. But in the context of the modern world, such sentiment towards migrants and refugees is not shared, as evidenced by the aforementioned predicaments. Although existing instruments regarding contemporary slavery apply to both migrant workers and aliens, specific means of exploitation akin to slavery affect refugees in particular. Cho, will you explain this next part? Yeah, no problem. So basically, all victims of forced labor, survival status, and slavery are deprived of their rights under the ICCPR Article 12 to freedom to choose their residence and liberty of movement. They are prevented from utilizing their right of access to courts and to a fair trial by their employers and controllers. The lengthy catalog of abuses of one's rudimentary rights that accompany slavery is endless. In the harshest cases, such abuse includes the removal of one's cultural identity, i.e. by giving them a new name, forcing them to learn slash speak a new language, and even trying to force them to change their faith. This, thereby, subjects them to coercion in violation of Article 18 of the ICCPR. And just adding on to that, other cases of contemporary slavery also involve preventing victims from establishing a family. All cases involve violation of the right to both impart and receive information, their right to peacefully assemble, freedom of expression, and last but not least, their freedom of association. You know, Cho Cho, uh, changes definitely need to be made around here. No, hey, they definitely do. I mean, I guess like, with the facts of the situation now listed out though, um, if it's all right, I'd like to change our focus of this discussion to country policy, specifically Mozambique. There are many countries around mm-hmm. the world that need support in combating slavery, but one country that I think fails to receive this necessary, I guess, like attention from the media and especially within the United States is the Republic of Mozambique, a country located on the southeastern coast of Africa. For sure. I think that's a good idea. And I also think it's really interesting how you preface the media attention by saying necessary. In this day and age, it's really easy for internet users to quickly swipe by key news articles. And when you really come to think about it, it's not really their fault, you know? No, yeah. There's just so much information out there, just so, so much information out there that we often find ourselves struggling to organize an information overload. It's like facts are being regurgitated in the media and that makes necessary discussion, you know, increasingly difficult. It's very hard to have them. There are two ways to work around this, however, and one is by cleaning up the World Wide Web. An impossible task, by the way, as there's simply just not enough time and energy to do so. The second way is to continue to push meaningful sentiments out in the world with the hope that people will listen and potentially chime in to share their views and inside positive change. With this, you know, Cheryl, let's talk about Mozambique. Yeah. So I guess an example of something that's happened in the past is that in October 1986, the South African government announced its decision to freeze the work permits of 68,000 
Mozambique is legally working with the state, thereby slashing Mozambique's greatest source of foreign exchange earnings. And from this, later that month, South, South African extremists ransacked towns and tracts of territory away from government control. Um, as far as I know, over 300,000 Mozambicans fled in error, joining more than half a million of their compatriots who had taken refuge in neighboring states. But due to this inflation of refugee populations, the Red Cross was forced to leave the state in retaliation for the expulsion of a Southern, South African delegate from a Red Cross summit in Geneva. So, hey, it's definitely not a good situation there. Definitely not. And yeah, I remember reading about this. You know, the expulsion exacerbated already inflamed sentiments as Mozambique now struggled to cope with its massive population displacements, a growing insurgency, and the prospect of cut foreign exchange earnings. Yeah, and I guess what we can conclude from this is that Mozambique is in a state of emergency, and approximately 4 million of its citizens who are seeking sanctuary almost in neighboring countries require immediate protection and assistance. The argument that Mozambican refugees are fleeing turmoil cannot be disputed. And therefore, the fact that these refugees are invariably welcomed in their locations of asylum by distant relevance is also beyond question. However, the state governments continue to ignore the plight of these refugees. Only when faced with an overwhelming refugee presence do the UNHCR and state governments begin to respond in accordance with international laws. Mozambican refugees and the disparities that they face on a day-to-day basis are being ignored. That's ridiculous, you know? No, I completely agree. I mean, as we mentioned before, change must be done. Uh, Mozambique hosts approximately 42,000 asylum seekers and refugees within its borders. Most of them sheltered and maritime camped in the Nampula province. And in its early development, the maritime camp was was very remote and underdeveloped. barely providing the basic first aid uh, necessities that so many refugees and former slaves in life-threatening conditions really definitely needed. You know, since then, the Mozambican government has renovated infrastructure, but the nation still lacks the resources and finance required to effectively and sufficiently support rehabilitation programs for refugees and former slaves. No, the reality of the situation really is that forced labor is a common practice in Mozambique. Um, female and younger refugees, in addition to Mozambicans in rural areas, are trafficked for domestic servitude within long hours, no pay, and honestly, horrendous conditions. Um, Mozambique currently serves as a trafficking transit point due to its proximity to South Africa as well. Yeah, I definitely hear you. And, you know, just due to the dilapidated conditions of the aforementioned camps, refugees are often targeted and manipulated through the promise of employment education, and other social mobility in exchange for domestic servitude and sexual exploitation. Traffic, Mozambicans, and refugees alike often labor for years away from home under atrocious conditions before their exploiters dispose of them. Again, dispose of them through reporting as illegal migrants and having them deported. And even though the government itself demonstrated progress, at least, in trying to remedy the situation by passing a, I guess, comprehensive set of human trafficking laws in 2008, Needless to say, the corruption in the country often hinders its prosecution efforts. Which is more of a reason why we need to step up. Those who have much should give back much and more. Exactly. I mean, with that said in mind, um, I think it'll be a good time to kind of transition to discussing potential solutions. I mean, the following solutions by all means are not, I guess, enforceable in the sense that they could be put into action like right now. However, they are merely 
policy suggestions that we'd like our listeners to ponder upon with the hope that you too will maybe be able to find a platform to act upon. Um, whether those actions line up with what we're about to share or maybe they're on a completely different platform of your own. But I guess at the podcast Pigeon, we simply wanted to get the word and our message out there. So as we talked about, we need to navigate our ways around media noise by encouraging communities to emphasize the social justice themes and topics that need to be addressed. Hey, um, would you start this section off for us? Of course. As we take this next steps to reconceptualize slavery within the broader framework of the international community. For example, we discussed the case study on Mozambique to increase awareness about a country that is often hidden away by tailored news sources. Cho and I are both pushing for a paradigm shift from abolition to empowerment through two approaches that focus on the economic and social rights of victims. Solution one being indivisibility. Unlike previous efforts, the discourse for all contemporary forms of slavery must establish bold platforms for enslaved. By understanding the relationship between discrimination, poverty, few employment opportunities, and modern enslavement, the concept of slavery, especially in the context of refugees, need to be expanded to include civil, political, social, and economic rights. In line with that thought, the preamble to the International Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights, or I-C-E-S-C-A-R, recognizes the indivisibility of human rights by explaining how the ideal of free human beings enjoying freedom from fear and want can only be achieved, again, can only be achieved the conditions are created whereby everyone may enjoy their economic, social, and cultural rights, as well as their civil and political rights. Yeah, I mean, baseline guideposts for economic and social rights provide a starting point, at least, for the identification of rights uh, applicable to all victims. Countries need to reform agrarian agrarian systems in such a way as to achieve the most economic development, utilization of natural resources with a aim of creating a holistic, I guess, remedy. Additionally, our communities must recognize that for one to enjoy the right to an adequate standard of living, one must be able to work to uh, provide such necessities. And, you know, that's so right. Per, I... uh, Oh man, this acronym is hard. (laughs) I-C-E-S-C-A-R. Ice car. Ice, ice car. Ice car Article 6. We recognize the right to work and call upon our listeners to encourage policymakers to stimulate vocational guidance programs and vocational training. The workplace must become an arena in which people have power over their own lives and well-being. Provided how extensive the catalog for rights is, for example, the right to work, the right to property, the right to an adequate standard of living, the right to education, the right to personal security, the right to health, and the right to participate in the development of initiatives aimed at destroying slavery. The proposed list authorizes guideposts to enable enslaved workers and refugees to identify all infringements upon their rights in a multitude of contexts. The autonomy of the worker needs to be highlighted here as well. International laws must shift away from the language of victimization to the agency of the enslaved. Without a doubt, slaves are victims of terrible delinquencies and all slave owners should be incriminated to the full extent of the law. However, situating the discourse on enslavement solely within a human rights context establishes dual recognition of their voice as holders of rights and members involved in the discourse on slavery. What Cho and I really believe is that truly meaningful strategies need to include enslaved persons into all discussions with countries on how to address the policy dimensions of marginalization. According to Richard Fogg, consultation and popular participation needs to be at the very core of an effort to build a human rights culture. 
Victims of human rights abuses, in particular slaves, need to share in this international process. The creation of human rights law needs to be attuned to both substance and the participation of all vulnerable elements in the dynamics of fostering social justice. Quickly, Cho, let's go through our second approach. Yeah, no problem. Our second approach is to encourage a unified international front. A comprehensive global human rights treaty on contemporary forms of slavery will be a step in the direction towards obviating uh, obviating, ah, the problems of multiple international instruments with different parties. Recognizing the overlap in practice between the eradication of slavery and the abolition of forced labor, all conventions must merge under one instrument to facilitate approval speeds. Additionally, the forming of a new convention would serve other reciprocal purposes. We believe that a shared agreement among countries and communities would find those specific methodologies so reprehensible that they constitute the crime of slavery. Essentially, we're pinpointing different legislations that constitute slavery and removing them from um, any future actions. The provisions of social and economic rights of the enslaved will create the basis for innovative norm setting in the global arena. Now, um, if I'm not mistaken, correct me if I'm wrong, but the UN General Assembly has actually released detailed criteria regarding the creation of new international human rights treaties. They are one, all rights must reflect a fundamental social value. Two, all rights must be relevant in the world of diversity. Three, the treaty must be capable of achieving a near unanimous international consensus. consensus. And four, the treaty must be consistent but not repetitive of existing human rights law. Five, the treaty must be precise enough to effectively provide obligations and identifiable rights on part for each member state or country. Well, you know, I think I think you got all of them, <laughs> five points. <laughs> yeah, the the formation, guys, of a new convention on contemporary forms of slavery meets such criteria. In addition, the international community must establish secondary criteria that define the constituent elements of slavery through such a unified convention. Per this agreement, practices that encourage slavery need to be recognized as such. Slavery. The inclusion of a wider array of exploitative actions under the proposed rubric will put doctrinal confusion to rest, thereby adding an element of transparency in an already muddied international community. And with this, we'll stop for today. Thank you everyone for listening to this episode. We hope this helped you in your understanding of the topic of modern slavery, and we encourage you to recognize your roles in society as social citizens. As Martin Luther King Jr. once said, the hope of a secure and livable world lies with disciplined nonconformists who are dedicated to justice, peace, and brotherhood. As members of one big world, what affects one affects us all. Thank you again, and please stay safe.